You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 37. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am immigration lawyer Mark Holthy, coming to you live from the... No, it's actually not live. (laughs) I would love to, to do a podcast that was live, but no, this one isn't live. But I am coming to you from the beautiful Snow White province of Alberta, Canada. It is cold out there. I came into my office this morning... um, Saturday, let's see, what is the date here? Uh, December the 10th. <laughs> it's all a blur. Um, closing in on Christmas very quickly. But as I got in my truck to drive into the office and I was thinking, oh my goodness, it is so cold. I became unbelievably grateful once again for the heat that we have in our homes. And I, I can't believe, um, I was thinking just yesterday about uh, the First Nations people here of Canada who lived in teepees during this frigid weather and who carved out lives for themselves and their families in such frigid temperatures. And, you know, not even them, but going up north into the Northwest Territories and into the Arctic. And man, I am grateful for the modern day uh, privileges that we enjoy. Well, this podcast is obviously uh, getting off on a little bit different light. Um, you know, I invite people to come on and I, I am so excited to to promote the amazing immigration lawyers that we have across the country and, and consultants who are just doing it right. And it has been an absolute pleasure to be the host of this podcast. And uh, the slate of speakers that we have coming up is fantastic. I want to thank all of those listeners who've tuned in. Uh, who've given me positive feedback and encouragement, who've, who've left reviews. And, and I'd also encourage anyone who hasn't to go over to iTunes and leave a review because it helps with the um, uh, just the identification of the podcast. It, it's, it's more searchable and it gets out to more people. I'm also super excited to announce that we had over 3,000 downloads last month and it seems to be growing and growing. So, Thanks to all of you who are sharing uh, the podcast. And and like I said, the, the whole purpose here is to provide a source of information that people can trust and that they can rely on. And, uh, and also to promote those amazing uh, practitioners out there who are just doing it right. Well, this podcast is no exception. And in fact, as I indicated in, in the show notes when I was writing those up for the podcast here... Um, this has to rank up there as one of the top podcasts that I've had the privilege of doing. I interviewed um, immigration lawyer Jean Munn, QC, from Calgary, Alberta. And QC stands for Queen's Council, which is basically a recognition of her outstanding service and, uh, and dedication to the profession and to her community. But I had the pleasure of having Jean Munn come on and talk about humanitarian and compassionate applications. Now, this is the application that you file when 
all else fails. When you're at the last stages, there is no other way of obtaining permanent resident status in Canada for whatever reason it might be. Maybe there's a, a bar, a section 117.9D bar or, or uh, you know, a failed refugee claim or whatever it might be. But if you're in the process of filing an HNC, or even if you've filed them for years and years, um, you know, or it's your very first time filing, you have got to listen to this podcast. Gene was fabulous. And my very, very first interaction uh, with other immigration lawyers in Calgary when I started my practice with, um, with Gowlings was with Jean. And she, her firm was located a few floors down in the office tower that, that uh, we were located in. And my principal at the time knew I was working on a difficult file for one of the firm's important clients. And, and uh, it was quite an interesting situation because um, there was a, a family that was fairly well off and uh, the the wife had a butler. I don't know how else you'd describe him. He was he did everything. He was like the gardener, the butler, the chef, the chauffeur. Anyways, he, she did not want to lose this guy. And I think he was from Argentina at the time. But we'd canvassed every option. We'd exhausted every avenue. And then it came down to filing an HNC application. And I had no clue what I was going to do. So uh, my principal at the time, David Corey, suggested why don't you go down and, uh, and talk to Jean? And so we went, uh, Jean was so kind and so gracious. She, she sat me down, explained how agencies worked, um, gave me some samples to work from. And really, you know, although I have filed very few agencies in, in, in my, you know, uh, in my practice, it just hasn't come up a lot. She was instrumental in, in getting me started on the right track. So to have the privilege all these years later 15 or however however many years it's been to have Jean come back and really dive in and share um, her insight, her knowledge, her expertise. And this isn't just fluff stuff, guys. This is this is hardcore trade secret stuff that you don't share because that's why your clients pay you. Well, that's what we've got coming in this podcast. And uh, I, I just, I cannot say enough how awesome Jean is. So um, without further ado, uh, let's jump to that fantastic interview with immigration lawyer Jean Munn. Well, welcome, um, Jean Munn, who is joining us today on the podcast. How are you? Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have Jean join us. She is an immigration lawyer, um, one of the the gurus practicing in the city of Calgary. She has been a tremendous mentor and just a wonderful um, a supporter of, of young lawyers, and I, uh, especially those who are entering into the world of immigration law. And I'm going to go into a little bit more of her bio, but I thought I would start off by reminding Jean that she was probably one of the first immigration lawyers that I had any contact with when I was working at Gowlings. And I don't, re- I don't know if you even remember um, me coming down to your office there and having that difficult uh, H&C uh, situation I was dealing with, and, and you were my first introduction, to, really, to immigration. Mark, I do remember that. It was uh, several years ago, <laughs> yes, and was. I'm very happy to see that you've turned uh, into a wonderful immigration lawyer yourself. <laughs> well, um, it was it was uh, th- everything that I am today, I can tell you, I owe to, to great lawyers like yourself and, and Michael Green and, and other uh, um, other uh, really experienced, excellent immigration lawyers in Calgary who kind of took me under their wing and uh, and pushed, uh, you know, and helped me to, to kind of get my roots uh, 
root set. So, and that's, I think, one of the things that I love most about the immigration bar is just how collegial everyone is. So, yeah, so excellent. Well, before we, we jump into our topic today, which is uh, humanitarian and compassion applications, I thought I'd give a little bit of a, a brief overview um, of Jean's bio and let everybody else know a little bit more about her. How does that sound, Jean? Oh, that sounds great. Okay. Um, Jean's preferred areas of practice are immigration and employment law, um, but uh, her fluency in Spanish is actually um, one of the things that... that uh, at least a, a large portion of her immigration practices is driven by uh, her Spanish-speaking clientele. And uh, she has experience in all facets of immigration law. So whether it's deportation, refugee law, family applications, permanent residence, uh, she works with companies and individuals and you know foreign workers, the whole gambit. Jean's got uh, experience in all of these different areas. And um, I asked her before we started the call here what percentage of her practice was, her immigration practice was Spanish speaking, and, and she indicated um, as high as 50%, which is really interesting. I know when I got into immigration, I was always looking for opportunities to use my Portuguese. And um, uh, definitely there's far fewer Portuguese speaking <laughs> individuals in, uh, in, in Alberta in particular as compared to Spanish. So uh, obviously, Jean, that's, uh, that's one of the, um, the skill sets that you, that you have that has really uh, resulted in, in, uh, in benefits to your immigration practice. It's in fact how I got started in an immigration practice. I uh, I had always been interested in issues of international development, and I did an undergraduate degree in Latin American history. Um, I had articles at the Alberta Court of Appeal, but the day I was admitted to the bar, I set up my own practice. And I registered with Legal Aid and told them that I could speak Spanish. Mm. Well, about 20 minutes later, <laughs> I got a call asking if I would do a, a second-level refugee hearing. And uh, I said, of course, of course I will. <laughs> I hung up the phone and <laughs> what, what is, is a <laughs> second-level refugee hearing? I was fortunate uh, to be able to call upon Michael Green at that time in much the same way that you called upon me with respect to a humanitarian and compassionate application. And he was exceedingly helpful. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my career in immigration law. Huh, it's interesting. Yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, I think most of the, the lawyers that I speak with, that's a very, very similar pattern. You know, as, you, as you're getting started out, um, you, you receive a call from someone and they need help and the rest is history. And, yes. Uh, yeah, and I think for me, one of the reasons, uh, as I've mentioned numerous times on the podcast, the reason I like immigration so much is just the the difference that we can make in people's lives and how people are genuinely appreciative of what we do. It's uh, it's actually rewarding. I also think that the people that we work with, including um, our uh, fellow lawyers and the people that we work with in the department, um, especially in this part of the country. They're very collegial relationships. They're very helpful relationships. Um, I don't, they're not um, uh, adversarial. They're not territorial. And it makes uh, going to work uh, a pleasure, quite apart from the service we provide to clients, which in itself is very rewarding. Yeah, that's a good point. The, you know, we're definitely, there isn't a, any adversarial nature to, to what we do. And, um, 
yeah, like I said before, the the immigration bar across the country is just so collegial, and it, especially for a young lawyer who's starting out in the area, it's just wonderful to have uh, access to so many people who genuinely care about you and your success, and you know don't feel threatened by your interest in the area, and uh, that's how I always felt about it, and I think it's a, a testament to people such as yourself and Michael who have kind of blazed the trail and, and open up the opportunities for, for the rest of us to get involved in immigration. Now, Gene, you indicated that you were a fourth generation Calgarian, so your roots run deep in that fine city. And uh, you can, you know, you completed your undergrad and your law degrees, both at U of C. Um, then after Jean completed her, her articles with the Alberta Court of Appeal, she was called to the bar in 89 when she opened up her own independent law practice, which I think many, many immigration lawyers uh, tend to do that when we start out. But then in January of 97, you joined Karen & Partners, and um, Rekha McNutt was one of our previous guests on uh, the podcast, and, and uh, she also spoke very highly of her interactions with you, and that, that was one of the reasons that she ultimately settled on, on immigration, and, um, and uh, you know, now she's doing very well in the area as well. Um, now, you indicated uh, that you have other interests, and you listed in, in your bio for me here that you enjoy gardening, golfing, and, and gourmet cooking. But you, the thing that I wanted to touch on the most was you also stated that you like uh, long stretches of urban and rural uh, walking. Uh, I should say walking down long stretches of urban, rural, and seaside pathways. And uh, in 2016, just this year, um, you, uh, you walked an 800-kilometer stretch through the north of Spain and, um, and along the coast of Portugal. Let me, let me get this straight here. So in 2016, you walked the coast of Portugal. Right. It was in 2012 that I did the uh, Camino in northern Spain. It was 800 kilometers. My walk this year uh, was 600 kilometers from Lisbon in Portugal, um, just inland from the coast north to Santiago, Spain. Huh. And it was an amazing, uh, an amazing journey. They all have been amazing journeys. I have been walking um, in an obsessive sort of way uh, for as long as I can remember. And before I knew uh, why I was doing it, I would easily walk 10, 15 kilometers. If I had a sore back, I would go for a walk. Well, what I have found out after uh, paying a little more attention is that uh, this walking is just fantastic rehabilitation if you've got aches and pains but I, it's also prehabilitation so you <laughs> will have less aches and pains in the future and uh, what it does for one's uh, mental health and psychological well-being is absolutely amazing hmm. and I, that's the one thing that I would identify for sure in my own life I've started walking to work now lately and it's you know, my wife says, are you sure you don't need a ride? Nope, I'm good. And, uh, yes. you know, just the psychological benefits that you get, just emotional. I, I find that it's an opportunity to kind of reset myself for the day. Even coming home after work, I'll, I'll tend to walk. Now, I have the, the luxury of, of living um, in Lethbridge, which is a smaller city, and uh, my house is a, about a 20-minute walk. So it's definitely not the 800 uh, kilometers <laughs> that that you have done, but... 
yeah, the benefits of, of just getting out, getting the fresh air and, uh, and doing that is, yeah, they can't be understated. So very no. cool. Now I'd be, re- I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, um, some of the numerous things that you have been doing, uh, both from a publication and presentation standpoint, you know, you've spoken at many conferences and, and, uh, you, per, you know, you, the, some of the publications that you've, uh, that you've produced, uh, you indicate here, the Canadian encyclopedic digest Carswell for citizenship and immigration law, 2010, um, uh, Calgary legal guidance, legal advice manual, a guide to immigration law for non-immigration lawyers. That was back in uh, 1999. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, I'll put a little plug in for Lisa this year, the Legal Education Society of Alberta. We are going to be doing a um, a little seminar in Calgary and Edmonton that is actually focused on this exact topic. So the non-immigration lawyers who are looking to to provide pro bono assistance and help out with the, whether it's um, ECLC up in Edmonton, the Edmonton Community Legal um, uh, legal center or in Calgary with legal guidance. And that's kind of the focus that they've given me this year. And so I'm going to have uh, Reka come, come join us. Hopefully, actually, I'm not sure if she's responded to my, <laughs> my invitation yet. But, oh, you uh, know, I'm so happy to hear that. I've been doing volunteer work with summary legal advice clinics through Calgary legal guidance for more than 20 years. Right now I've developed a really committed group of volunteers who are all non-immigration lawyers, um, but because they're so committed and have stayed around for so long, they're becoming very knowledgeable and very helpful um, in their in their pro bono work. You bet. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, so that's the direction that we're, we're going to go. And, and um, like most uh, lawyers, I think there's a certain level of, um, if you're not practicing in immigration, the, the unknown is a little bit scary. And it's, it's, you know, the principles within immigration are, are not terribly traditional. And so to have this little offering, I, we hope that it will provide uh, a boost to some of these centers for lawyers who are willing to now you know, wade into that area and, and offer a little bit of summary advice. So very cool. Yes. All right. Well, you're probably enough about me. Let's move on to the topic at hand. And so let's shift gears and, and let's do that. Um, as I indicated in the beginning, we're going to talk a little bit about humanitarian and compassionate applications. And, uh, you know, right off the bat, what can you tell us a little bit about these, Jean? Well, what we're going to talk about today is an application for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Now, these applications uh, permit people who are otherwise not qualified to apply for permanent residence or for whom there is an obstacle within their application to securing permanent residence. Um, But I don't want to uh, forget to mention that the Humanitarian and Compassionate Authority exists in a variety of different forms throughout the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? In the uh, Immigration Appeal Division, for example, we're dealing with a number of different kinds of people, people who are sponsoring family members or uh, spouses or parents. Um, We're dealing with people who are being asked to leave Canada for a variety of different reasons. And in that process, uh, one can request that 
their case be looked at through a humanitarian and compassionate prism, so to speak. So there's that authority and those words uh, come up in, in other places in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. In another uh, kind of application, when somebody is asking for a temporary resident permit, the legislation makes reference to compelling circumstances. But whenever we are addressing compelling circumstances, we use the humanitarian and compassionate paradigm. Huh. Now, I know, you know, we, we want to keep this fairly practical and, and not get too technical, but there was a recent Supreme Court, or Supreme Court of Canada decision that came out that I think many of us are hoping will um, make it a little bit more realistic <laughs> for people who who are trying to apply and seek this um, really seek seek the discretionary grant of this this type of a, an application. Um, so can you give us a little bit of background on how this case uh, has has hopefully softened to some extent? The assessment process maybe maybe you don't see it that way i'm hoping it is in terms of at least in terms of the compassionate side of uh, the humanitarian and compassionate uh, assessment well mark i have to tell you i'm very fortunate this semester i'm one of the co-instructors at the university of calgary law and policy class and there are a number of students who are writing papers one of these students uh, is writing a paper on Kanthasami, uh-huh. and this is the case at the Supreme Court of Canada, and is is going to be writing a paper on whether, in fact, it's changed anything. anything. <laughs> yes. I'd like to uh, talk about Kanthasami and what it's changed, but just to go back a little bit to the beginning, um, with uh, an application for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassionate grounds, it's... Uh, It's uh, created by Section 25 in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And what it allows an officer to do is to to receive a permanent residence application and to select that person for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Anybody who's in Canada can make this kind of an application for permanent residence, even if they don't qualify, or especially if they don't qualify in any existing program, or if there is otherwise a bar to their application. Now, humanitarian and compassionate considerations can be um, requested with respect to applications that are taking place outside of Canada. Hmm. But uh, given our time constraints today, I, I want to focus on the application that is made inside Canada. Okay, so, you, so you're saying, and I know a lot of lawyers, because obviously this podcast is directed to, to immigration lawyers as, as much as anyone. And so for the longest time, I didn't even think that H&C really to some extent um, was seriously considered outside of Canada. So you're saying that there is still a, a possibility that an officer could take that into consideration when they're adjudicating an application. 
Certainly. So to use lawyer shorthand, <laughs> one of the most common scenarios for the application of a humanitarian and compassionate jurisdiction is within the context of a 117.9D problem. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the circumstance where somebody came to Canada with permanent residence, but on their way did not declare a spouse or did not declare a child. And it can happen in an incredibly innocent fashion. So Mr. Foreign Worker applies for permanent residence in Canada. He gets his permanent residence. He is happier uh, than anybody has been in years. And he knows that he has to, one of the ways to actually get his permanent residence has to come through a border. So he decides to go home and his sweetheart of three years who has been (laughs) waiting for him, they can't take it anymore. They run off and get married. Well, he's happier now than he's ever been. This is even better than permanent residence. He gets on the plane, comes back into Canada, lands at the airport and is asked, do you have any dependents? And he says, well, I just got married or... He doesn't even think about it and goes, no, I don't have any dependents because he's thinking children. In he comes to Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, a month later, he comes to you and he wants to sponsor his wife. And it's one of those you did what yeah. scenarios. It's the most innocent of situations, but he is permanently barred from sponsoring his wife to come to Canada unless... You make that application in the normal course and request humanitarian and compassionate relief from the provisions of paragraph 117.9d. So that's an example of how it's used outside Outside. of Canada. And, And you know what? That's probably one of the most common ways that it would be used. Like when I think about my experiences, you're you're right. You know, that is that is the scenario very, very often in the context of a spousal sponsorship. And I guess this is where Kantasami, I think, okay, has it has it built in any you know any additional uh, compassion into the assessment? Is it is it really there? And uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. So on a very mm-hmm. technical, very technical point, Kantasami, although it says so in several pages, several dozen pages, um, basically says that. You're looking at uh, a situation and asking yourself, are there humanitarian and compassionate considerations that can be taken into account? And Kanti Sami said that the way immigration officers had decided they were going to deal with this through a, a construct of hardship, unusual, undeserved, or disproportionate hardship, had there was a, a possibility that if they just used that construct, they would be limiting themselves. And for the lawyers out there, one mustn't fetter one's discretion. <laughs> so um, Kantasami had a look at a lot of case law and... Um, uh, I don't know if you would call it a softening of the uh, jurisdiction. Um, it's a broadening of that mm-hmm. jurisdiction. Interesting. 
So mm-hmm. there's options outside of Canada, but right now during our podcast here today, we're going to talk about what you can do inside. So as far as eligibility goes, is there any restrictions? Is there any type of applicant that would be ineligible or somehow unable to file this type of a, an application? Well, as I mentioned, you can request humanitarian and compassionate relief against almost every bar to permanent residence. However, recent amendments to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act have made it impossible to request relief against the bars involving security, uh, international war crimes, and organized crime. Hmm. Now, the reason for that is because those particular bars have their own process for seeking an exemption. So uh, the logic of the legislation basically says that if you are inadmissible to Canada and you're in Canada because of security or organized crime or international uh, war crimes, then you can apply for an exemption to that inadmissibility right within the inadmissibility provisions. And so you must do that first before asking for permanent residence on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Hmm. That's interesting. And on that topic, I, I actually just finished interviewing Peter Edelman. And he, uh-huh. he, uh, he spoke on that exact topic. So this is a nice, uh, a very nice um, follow-up to that discussion. So after you've exhausted those options for, for uh, compassionate consideration and, and exemption through those security provisions, you're saying now that this pretty much is broad enough to, to capture almost, you know, for the most part, almost all other types of, uh, of, of uh, applications and, uh, and applicants. Certainly. So if we're dealing with the person inside Canada, the, the kind of people who are um, eligible are those, first of all, who aren't able to apply in any other program. So, for example, the vast majority of failed refugee claimants have no other way of applying for permanent residence. Uh, Likewise, a number of temporary foreign workers here in Canada um, might not be eligible to apply for permanent residence in the economic classes because of their level of English, because they have a handicapped child at home, uh, for a, a variety of reasons. They um, can't be in Canada long enough for the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program to deal with their application. Yeah. Um, so that's the problem where there's no category for the application in the first place. Hmm. Um, but then there are those who might qualify. So you have the temporary foreign worker who applies for uh, permanent residence, gets the Alberta Immigrant Nominee uh, Program's nomination, but cannot carry that all the way through to uh, permanent residence or a living caregiver because they have uh, themselves perhaps a minor criminal record or um, they have a family member who has an illness, um, or they themselves have an illness. So you can request humanitarian and compassionate relief in the application with respect to that obstacle. Mm 
So if you're making an application for permanent residence and there's no other category that this application would otherwise fit in, it's a completely separate application. And the information on the website, um, you have to be grateful it's the 21st century. <laughs> the information on the website um, is extant and useful. The H&C application has its own set of forms. And it has an explanation of, of what officers are looking at. Now, if you're in Canada and you're making an application and the problem is an obstacle or a bar to your admissibility, then what you do is you make the application in that stream, uh, perhaps, and, and request the humanitarian and compassionate relief in that stream. Hmm. So if you have a, a let's say, well, let's say an in-Canada spousal sponsorship, and you tell yes. me if this works. So, And you have someone with a, a child maybe that has a disability that could potentially be you know, medically inadmissible to Canada. And let's say they're in the Philippines and the family's here, um, and they're at that sponsorship stage. If they do not yet, like often what happens is they don't realize that there's an inadmissibility until they've kind of gone down that path a little ways. So... You're saying, is it possible then to, uh, in, in when you get the fairness letter back from the government, to then at that stage request agency consideration? Um, yes and no. So first of all, um, with a permanent resident here in Canada sponsoring the wife and child, there is no medical inadmissibility. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important distinction. Mm. But if if she's a foreign national here in Canada who has an application for permanent residence, either in an economic either um, following work as a temporary foreign worker or in the living caregiver class, and that application is made for permanent residence, knowing that uh, there's a medically inadmissible child in the works. You can front load that application right at the beginning. So when the living caregiver, the foreign national, applies for permanent residence, you can front load that application with agencies hmm. on the accompanying dependents. Yes. Hmm. Or or you can wait for the fairness letter. Okay. So if we took the spouse and we flipped it and said maybe there's a, a dependent <coughs> child that is, uh, you know, is is now 18 and, and got themselves a DUI. So in yes. that type of a circumstance then and you the fairness letters received you're saying that you can actually request those agency submissions both at the front end if you realize it and you're on the file at the beginning and and you're submitting the application you can front load it or when a client comes to you after and says oh i've got this problem can you help and it's you know it's a fairness letter regarding the admissibility of a dependent child due to criminality um, you can then at, at that stage um, request agency consideration yes absolutely so I think this is probably what most lawyers are going to ask. What's the likelihood of success? I know all the facts are different and all the circumstances are different, but you know, how often are those, um, those applications, you know, you've done a lot of these, you know, how often are these successful? And I, and I asked that for a reason and I'll, I'll explain after, <laughs> after I just got one refused. So, um, 
Well, I don't know what the statistics are, but I do believe that we have uh, discovered and continue to share with other council uh, a number of keys with respect to uh, doing the humanitarian and compassionate application. So what factors are taken into consideration? Um, the factors are uh, innumerable. Everything depends on the fact situation. If you are dealing with a fact situation and it makes you want to cry or otherwise tear your hair out, then your job is to explain to an immigration officer that fact situation so that he wants to cry or otherwise tear his hair out. We're dealing with immigration officers who um, have significant workloads and have to review a number of these applications. And they're given um, instructions and training and support on how to do it. That's what appears on the website. Use that format because it's helpful for them. So three big factors. We're looking at establishment or ability to establish here in Canada. We're looking at hardship. And I would still use that word because even though it's impossible to translate the connotation of that word into Spanish, Mm -hmm. um, it's a very good word in English for what you want to show an immigration officer. And then the third factor, um, which is huge, is the factor with respect to uh, the well-being or the best interests of minor children. And those children can be here in Canada, they can be, or not, they can be Canadian citizens or not. They don't even have to be your children. You might be in a situation where you've lived with your uh, brother and sister's children for the last eight years, and you're basically the third parent. And in fact, you're better than the third parent because you're the uncle confidant. Mm -hmm. And so um, there, those factors are very, very important. Now, what cannot be taken into consideration, and this is due to recent changes uh, in the law, is that immigration officers are not permitted to take into consideration factors that would result in, um, uh, or that that have to do with making a refugee claim, that have to do with the definition of a convention refugee or the definition of a person in need of protection. Now, when this was added to the law, it resulted in a number of interesting uh, problems. So you would have the Refugee Protection Division saying, this case doesn't qualify for refugee protection. And then you would relate the same problems to the HNC officer, and the HNC officer would say, oh no, this is a refugee problem. This is not an HNC <laughs> problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on that very issue, uh, Rekha McNutt went to federal court, and it was another opportunity for the federal court to talk about risk as part of hardship versus risk within the refugee context. Hmm. So hardship, when I'm discussing that uh, with clients, I tell them we're talking about any situation that makes you feel 
sad or worried for somebody. So you might have a country with adverse country conditions. Just think wretched country conditions. Mm -hmm. Think about uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Syria. Think about Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, There are numerous countries in the world where the conditions are wretched. Even in the Philippines, for example, you can have a nurse who's living in the Philippines whose um, income as a nurse in the Philippines, if she's really good at her job, is around $500 a month. And when you live um, uh, at our standard of living, or in the Philippines, uh, to live at our standard of living, it costs about, well, almost as much as it costs here. Mm. So the standard of living in so many countries of the world where people are highly educated, uh, culturally sophisticated, uh, the situation for with respect to poverty is is astounding. So, Gene, how, how receptive are officers to those types of arguments? You know, obviously you have individuals that come and, and the government is, is really loves describing some people as economic refugees as opposed to, you know, a convention refugee. But where you have a situation where an individual is here and clearly there are more economic opportunities and the individual has better, you know, for their children and for themselves compared to their home country, how far do you have to go down to the you know, to really the, the poverty type level where health and well-being are, are being affected, um, you know, to, to actually get an officer to pay attention to those types of arguments? Well, we submit extant evidence. Now, recall that you're dealing with a person who's here in Canada. So an example might be a temporary foreign worker whose wife and five children are at home in Guatemala. And I have all the pictures of those children from Guatemala in their lovely school uniforms. And the only reason those children get to go to school is because their father is paying for it because he is working here. We use um, country condition evidence to show that if father was at home, what his monthly income would be. We show what would happen to those children if they were at home and father wasn't able to pay for their schooling. Um, We can use that to demonstrate uh, the outcomes for those children um, with respect to health, uh, education, job opportunities. And we can Mm. demonstrate, uh, and I wouldn't say easily because there's a lot of work involved, but we can demonstrate um, strongly that the best interests of the child uh, involve that father being allowed to remain in Canada as a permanent resident. Hmm. That is interesting. I, in and, all... and speaking about economic refugees, mm-hmm. um, like I, I think of that term lovingly. Hmm. I don't think of that term in a way that's um, meant to... Uh, demean right. the importance of the person. My um, my family came to Canada as economic refugees from Scotland some mm. 200 years ago and uh, haven't looked back. Right. No, I, I'm with you 100%. And you know what, Jean? It's awesome. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast because your compassion 
you know, just your passion for this area, just, it, it just flows from what you're saying. I can feel, you know, if I'm in a situation where I'm struggling, I want to hire you. <laughs> Well, you I know, know geography. <laughs> geography shouldn't be destiny. Yeah. And uh, somebody was born in a certain part of the world. The way I feel about that person's well-being isn't much different from the way I feel about mm-hmm. uh, my neighbor's children. Yes. That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Okay. So let's get to... Okay, so we've talked about some of the factors, you know, to take into consideration and what can't be taken into consideration. But from the standpoint of actually applying, so when you're setting up your, your applications and you're deciding, you know, um, you know wh- what to include and what, what not to include, um, how do you go about that process? You know, is there, is there uh, something, that you, you know, something that you focus on first? Because sometimes timing is an issue, right? I... I you know, from what I understand of H&C applications, um, just because you file one doesn't mean that someone necessarily is going to be able to stay. You know, their work permits expire and people have, you know, removal proceedings uh, commencing. How do you manage that timing issue? Well, humanitarian and compassionate applications for permanent residents do not stop removal. But once they are in, Immigration officers have to make a decision on those agency applications. And we've had more than one situation in this office where somebody's removal was effected before the agency decision was made. The agency decision was made, it was positive, and Canada brought them back to uh, Canada brought them back to Canada uh, for secondary processing. Hmm. So and that is Sorry, that's the procedure explained in the manuals. Huh. So if an individual, if you file, if someone looks like they're, you know, they're, they're on the verge of, of having to leave Canada and you file an H&C and they are removed, the H&C continues forward? Yes, oh. that's correct. Excellent. Okay. Okay. So in terms of making the application itself, be very, very careful with the forms. Uh, go over them very, very carefully. Um, and, and there's one form with respect to supplementary information we fill, where they ask specific questions about why you're making this uh, application. And we always say, see attached, because the attachment is one to two inches thick, depending on what we need to do. So what we do is we produce a country condition brief. I, it, there are very rare circumstances where an HNC application, although they certainly uh, exist, um, where you're doing an HNC application uh, where the country of origin is the UK or the US or France. Usually we're dealing with countries with wretched conditions. So we get a grasp on what we want to demonstrate in this H&C. We take a country condition brief, and we've probably done it before, and we've probably done it recently, but then we will customize it to this particular case 
where the emphasis is going to be on children or the emphasis is going to be on age discrimination with the parents who are going to go back to that country and are not going to be able to find work. Um, so we, we make that country condition brief. Then we make a submission and our submissions, um, we used to include all the country condition information mm -hmm. right in the submission. But the problem with that, I think, is that it, it was it was more difficult for officers to um, deal with. And we really want to emphasize all our major points in the submission and not have them get lost in the country condition material. So we've separated it all together. Mm, that's a great tip. The submission itself We'll discuss the whole background. How does this person end up being in Canada? Uh, why are they here? What proceedings have taken place so far? If there was a refugee claim, what happened to it? Um, we then, um, and, and we have asked our clients to help us by providing lots of documentation. So, the you know, we've got the forms. Let's look at the documents. The personal documents that we ask for from clients include all of the evidence with respect to their establishment. So their income tax returns, their proof of assets in Canada, work reference letters, self-employment documentation. Um, then we also ask them for character reference letters from people here in Canada, from their friends, from church or mosque with respect to volunteer work. And we ask them in those letters to have their uh, the writers describe how it is they got to know this person and what kind of person they are. So it's this character analysis and establishment. Uh, we go over skills. And that usually at this point, we say something to the effect that there's no other application for permanent residence available for uh, this particular person. Now, Jean, can I can I just jump back to those character reference letters? I think this is something that we all struggle with a little bit. Um, does it matter who's providing these? Now, you've talked about clergy and things like that. Um, if, if you, let's say you get an MP that, that knows this person um, or a government official or, you know, someone that's a little bit more recognizable, do those make a difference versus say, this is my friend, you know, Sally that I've known the whole time I've been here and she says, I'm a wonderful person. You know, are, are there some that carry more weight than others? I suspect that there are, but I think that the most important point is that the letters be personal. So I would take a detailed letter from uh, somebody at your church, a friend at your church, before a form letter from the MP mm -hmm. anytime. Gotcha. So, but if that MP is, uh, for whatever reason, uh, personally um, known to the applicant, uh, then we would want that, the circumstances of that personal knowledge included. Mm. Right? So, I think it makes a difference as well when it's a Canadian citizen who writes the letter and ends with something like, this is exactly the kind of person I would want to have as a neighbor mm -hmm. in my town. Yeah. yeah. That makes, yeah. Just bringing the whole human aspect to it and uh, Absolutely. bringing the person um, 
to life and helping the officer to understand how they're integrated, you know, they're, they're fully integrated in the community. They're, they're a valued member of the community. They're a contributing member of the community as opposed to someone who just, you know, just wants to stay here so they can earn more money for their family. The personal content can't be underestimated. There's two other kinds of letters that we ask for from our clients. One is a letter from, from them, a personal letter talking about what their life was like before they came to Canada, why they decided to come to Canada, how they have and how their family has been affected, how they've benefited from being in Canada, what they're worried about should they have to return to their country, what the situation of their children would be if they have to return to their country, and what are their hopes for the future if they're allowed to remain in Canada. Now, when this comes, either in handwritten or typewritten broken English or another language that's translated, it has an impact on the officer. And I, I want to mention another interesting file. I'm working on another file that's not an H&C file. It's the kind of file that one would typically draft and submit an affidavit for their client. The officer has asked that the applicant write the answers to her questions in his own Own words. words. Yep. And I... Uh, I think that's that's very interesting. Well, we've been doing that for years in the agency applications. Write that letter. And if they bring it in to me and I said, oh, no, not 40 words, 400 words. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot. You've got a lot more story to tell here. Um, as well, we ask for letters from people in the country of origin. Now, these are letters about country conditions. We ask them to make comments about how current country conditions are affecting them and how do they think the applicant is going to be affected if she has to go back. So this is where we get them to talk about things like uh, unemployment, underemployment, age discrimination in employment. Uh, We get to talk, they get to talk about what security measures they have to take for their children and for their, their property. And then, We use those letters when we're talking about country conditions um, to say that these country conditions are corroborated by people on the ground. Yes. Yes. That, you know, that's a really, really great insight. I'd never considered using those letters in that, in that way. And I can see, um, I can see how much they would strengthen the arguments that you're trying to make, especially with respect to country conditions. Well, I think officers become enthralled with those accounts and they hit home. You know, you get, you get an individual who's a friend who's back there says, yeah, my, one of my child, you know, one of my children, you know, was recently, you know, either attacked or was, you know, uh, was, was uh, kidnapped or abducted or something like that. And, now we're having to do this and this and, you know, we were able to get them back. But, you know, something now that's over the top. But, but you know, you know, my children are suffering and, and this is what their, you know, this is what would be the context of their family as well if, if they, you know, if they had to return. Or much more commonly, the school is shut down at least once a week due to violence in the vicinity. Huh. Yeah. That makes I mean, that, that, much more common. <laughs> huh. 
So, okay. So we've covered a, a bunch. So, so keep going. I, I, you know, I, I can't get enough of this. This is awesome, Jean. All right. So another thing that can be done is the use of psychological evidence. We are advocates. We are not psychologists. And I don't pretend to be able to um, conclusively report on what will be the impact on one's mental health should they have to return to their country. But psychologists can. And this was another very important thing that came out of the Kantasami case. And the Kantasami case said that expert evidence with respect to um, the well-being either of children or uh, others is very important and cannot simply be dismissed. Now, the Kantasami case perhaps well, I've seen it in decisions where the agency officer said the psychologist wasn't there, the psychologist doesn't have any firsthand information, yes. and so the psychologist, I'm not giving any weight to that report. Well, this is somebody who clearly didn't understand the nature of expert evidence. Yes. Um, but the Supreme Court of Canada and Kantasami set them straight. But we've been doing psychological assessments uh, for years, and in Calgary we are... Ah, blessed with a psychologist who speaks fluent Spanish um, and her area of expertise is children and adolescents. Well, you know what, Jean, this is my podcast and we can do whatever we want on this podcast. So if you're willing to share that person's name, I have no problems giving them a plug. Her name is Gabriela Valenzuela and she is a, a Canadian of apparently Spanish-speaking background uh, but she does fantastic assessments and reports. She's able to do them in English or in Spanish. And uh, uh, even with translators, um, she does very, very good work. Well, we're going to put um, a link to her website or how to contact her within the show notes after. So I'm going to get that from you because I think that that's as counsel, we're always looking for people that can, you know, that can provide uh you know, just, just that added value and obviously even trying to find the right one um, that is experienced and understands the immigration context who can, you know, provide things that are actually worthwhile. That That's invaluable. Well, she's definitely the one for children. There are two other psychologists in Calgary, Dr. Beverly Frizzell mm -hmm. and Dr. Hap Davis who provide excellent reports and have been doing so for more than 20 years. They know, uh, they know their immigration uh, stuff inside out, but they're very skilled clinicians. Awesome. I'm going to put all three in our show notes for the listeners. That's fantastic. And then I'll make sure okay. you get a commission for that, Gene. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm joking. So you want to make uh, the strongest application possible. It's evidence, evidence, evidence. Nobody is ever going to deny my agency application saying there's not enough evidence. And although I have a great deal of sympathy for decision makers who receive extant loads of information, we don't have any choice mm -hmm. because we have either individually uh, or we know another lawyer who's been hoist on the petard of insufficient evidence. Yeah. 
right? So um, we're very, very careful to make sure that there's sufficient evidence. That's Mm -hmm. fascinating. Well, obviously, um, we've got this strong application that we've put together. Can you talk a little bit about the actual procedure involved in like the processing side of things, how, how it plays out? All right. With respect to processing, uh, the application gets sent to the backlog reduction office in Vancouver. I've seen processing time within the last 10 years go from four years on average to six to 12 months. It has uh, speeded up considerably, and that's because uh, the backlog reduction office in Vancouver uh, sends these applications out to different offices for decisions. So uh, when one office, I suspect, it's when one office has more resources available for dealing with these questions, that office will get the application. So six to 12 months is about average right now. Uh, Once the humanitarian and compassionate application is made, consider making a temporary resident permit application for your client if they don't have any status or if their status is about to expire uh, because, one, there's no fee for the TRP application once an H&C application has been submitted. Hmm. And you can ask for a work permit because if a TRP is issued, the work permit will be issued um, because there's a right to the work permit. So all you're paying for is the application for the work permit. Those applications are sent to Vegerville and um, they are then generally sent down to Edmonton for um, processing. So Edmonton deals with those as opposed to Calgary. Yes, Calgary no longer deals with those at the local office. That's too bad. (laughs) In emergency situations, and I would um, uh, counsel lawyers to only use direct routes when it truly is an emergency because otherwise uh, somebody might get fed up with you. Mm -hmm. Um, In emergencies... With respect to temporary resident permits, um, one could contact the local office, which in this case is Edmonton, directly and provide enough detail and a request um, as to whether or not the office would be willing to entertain the application directly as opposed to sending it through Vegaville first. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have to be a very serious, serious situation for that to be entertained. Do you have any previous examples of what would amount to the level of, you know, uh, desperation, I guess, or, or just circumstances that could potentially justify making that type of a request? Well, if I were dealing with a family that was completely out of status and Uh, ended up that way because of errors either in the system or with their representation um, and were going to be destitute without a work permit, um, I might consider making the request directly at the local office. Because the reality is on those TRPs and work permits, processing times can, can stretch to a year. 
Well, yes. Uh, so they're great for implied status. And this is another thing. I, I don't like using the system, applying for a work permit where one is not at all entitled to that work permit, um, just to get the advantage of implied status. It's it's gaming the system. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, doesn't qualify. We're applying for a TRP. TRP. Yes. Right? Um, and if that application for the TRP is made while the person is still in status, there is implied status. Mm-hmm. So then it doesn't matter if it takes a year. Yes. And just to clarify for our listeners, um, if an application is submitted for an extension of that status, in this case a work permit, and uh, it is made prior to the expiry of the existing document, you can continue to work under the same terms and conditions. And you know, I know this is kind of off topic, but I had a little go around with Edmonton fairly recently on this exact situation. Uh, a young girl who through, well, it was a variety of circumstances, had f- fallen um, she should have applied for permanent residence, didn't. We ended up having to do an H&C. Uh, her work permit was expiring. She was running out of time. She'd used up her post-grad. So we filed a work permit in TRP. Well, she actually did it herself, and she submitted it on the very day that her work permit was expiring. And the officer in Edmonton said, uh-uh, you can't do that. Um, our policy is that it's the date that it's received, not the date that it's sent. And I, I said, well, it's you know equivalent of the postal rule. And, uh, and and she called me um, on, on the file, even though I wasn't the one who originally had submitted it. And we had a little bit of a discussion. And I said, okay, give me a couple days. And of course, I was able to pull up some documents, internal documents that confirmed that no, for permanent resident applications, maybe it is the date that you receive it. But for temporary, it's the date of filing. And so, because um, she was going to write her up for uh, unauthorized work and send her packing back to Bangladesh. Um, you know, and she had converted away from Muslim and was into shamanism here, and it would not have been a good scene for her. Her agency is still pending, but um, we were successful. And, uh, you know, th- those types of situations with the TRP, it took over a year for her, for us to get a decision on that TRP and work permit. And so she was working under implied status for that entire time. Yes, yes. So understanding how implied status works, how uh, the agency works, how fees will be lower if you um, send in the uh, TRP after you've after done the HNC. But if you can't, because sometimes you can't, you've got a week yes. to of status left and they've come to see you, well, that TRP and implied status, because you can then do the HNC and send the submissions up to be joined yes. with the application. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what happened with us. So in terms of processing times then, you're, you're indicating that it can be anywhere from six months to, to a year. Is that the initial decision? The initial, yes. you know, the first stage? Yes, that is um, the uh, time that it's generally taking to get a letter with respect to whether your application has been approved. Now this is called first stage processing, and it's just allowing your application for permanent residence to move forward from within Canada. Hmm. There are uh, secondary requirements, medical, security, and financial, that have to be followed up on um, after that initial decision. But with the initial decision, you can have uh, Alberta Healthcare, you can have uh, a work permit, you can have study permits, um, mm-hmm. you are 
um, safe and secure until the final decision. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, I can tell you, I have come away from this discussion unbelievably more educated in the world of HNCs. And I'll be honest, I usually just refer them to your office. Um, I have filed a grand total of three, I think, in my career. <laughs> and in every case, it has been complete and total no-brainers. Uh, like there's, there's no reason in the world it wouldn't be approved. Um, but you know what? This is just amazing. The insight that you've provided, even with respect to, to how broad um, uh, the evidence can be, you know, the creative ways are just, just exceptional. Is there anything else before I get your, your contact information and how everyone can reach you? Um, are there, is there anything else that you think would be important for the, our listeners uh, to, to know or to think about any other tip or strategy or anything else that maybe we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to add? I would only add that if you get a negative decision, don't delay. Um, try to find an immigration lawyer who has experience in federal court because we have had numerous cases that were rejected first time round. We went to federal court, we were successful, and that have been approved on uh, an application after federal court. Also, don't forget, you can make uh, second or third humanitarian and compassionate applications. And after the Kantasami decision came out in de December of 2015, there were some people that I found and called back and told them, I think the law has changed. I think you should make this application. Hmm. So um, don't quit. <laughs> that's an aw that's great. That's that's really good advice. And it'll be interesting to hear uh, what your students um, take is on whether there's been any meaningful change in the uh, decision making process with Kantasami. That will be oh, I'm. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that paper. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Jean, where, um, where's the best place people can go to, uh, to reach out to you and to contact you if they do have an issue, whether it's an immigration lawyer who wants to refer something to your office or, or an individual who is in a real, uh, you know, desperate situation and, and, and really needs help? Well, I would encourage people to use my email, uh, jmunn at karenpartners.com. During office hours, I'm often with people mm -hmm. or talking on podcasts over <laughs> uh, uh, the Skype. Uh, I'm in court. Uh, I'm on the telephone. So it's very difficult for me to answer the telephone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas I can look at email very early in the morning and uh, later in the day. So uh, that's the, the best way to contact me. Perfect. We'll put a link to your email address within the show notes. And uh, I just want to express sincere appreciation for the time that you've taken. You've spent a lot of time here and really given out some unbelievably useful information on strengthening agency applications and even how the whole process works. And uh, it, this is just another example of how, you know, just unbelievable lawyers like you um, deserve much more recognition and, uh, and um, you know, just 
the world needs to know that you exist. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why I created this podcast was to, to give greater exposure to lawyers who are doing it right, doing it for the right reasons, and doing it at an unbelievable level. So thank you. Well, in this day and age, Mark, uh, thank you. I think that the effort that you are putting into producing these podcasts um, is great continuing legal education for lawyers and provides a wonderful service for clients who have the ability to uh, listen in and listen up. You bet. Well, thank you so much, Sheen. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I am almost positive that all of you listening to this podcast are going to agree that that was fantastic. Jean went so far out of her way to provide insight and absolutely, this is trade secret stuff, guys. Like this is the the tips and strategies that she gave, the information that she shared with us so freely and openly. That's the kind of thing that lawyers guard closely because that's what makes them stand out from all of the other, you know, practitioners out there. That, that level of insight and, and detail that she shared with us, those strategies and tips was just awesome, just amazing. And uh, I cannot thank Jean enough for the time that she took to join us. Um, there are links, as I indicated, in uh, you'll find in the show notes to uh, that list of um, psychologists that she had mentioned in the podcast, as well as their email addresses, and, uh, and as well Jean's contact information. So, you know, I don't know even even know really how to how to wrap this one up, other than saying it was just freaking awesome. <laughs> it was so cool, and uh, it you know I have a situation right now myself with a client that you know that uh, is kind of in a difficult situation. They're down here in, in Lethbridge, where my Lethbridge office is, and and uh, you know all the things that Jean shared, I'm going to apply directly into you know how we're approaching uh, our, our efforts to resolve their their immigration issues. So thanks once again, Gene, for totally bringing it. And uh, I hope all of you will go out of your way to share this podcast uh, with all of your followers, if, if you're immigration lawyers and, and consultants. Um, and uh, if you're just foreign national, share it with the world because this will help anyone who's going to file an agency application. All right, a um, couple little closing items here. Uh, there's going to be some transformations in the world of Mark Holthy. Um, I'll share a little bit. I know this podcast is getting a little bit longer, but um, sometimes it's just interesting to to just talk about this journey of being an immigration lawyer. And over the last few months, I've kind of taken a little step back within my office and reconsidered the possibility of joining another firm. Um, right now, Holthy Tillman LLP will be coming to an end here at the end of December. Uh, my partner, Ryan Tillman, um, is uh, branching off and doing some other things with his life. And, and so it's necessitated uh, me thinking about what I'm going to do with mine. And so after having some discussions with, uh, you know, with a number of different places and coming really close to rejoining another, another law firm, um, I've decided that the best thing in the world for me is to stick with what I've got. And I am super excited to start this next chapter which ironically is, is to some extent coming full circle in that I'm, I'm going to be going back and creating Holthy Law Group. 
and uh, you know, with all the 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 wonderful people that are working with me now, and then looking to expand from that basis. So super excited about the challenge that are coming in 2017. It's all obviously a chance to reflect on uh, on what's to come, to set new goals, and and I am super excited to transition as well um, into including a lot more content for uh, HR managers and companies and corporations because as I've seen out there, there's a real lack of it. Uh, no one's really targeting those types of individuals. And uh, and so I'm going to be shifting my podcast a little bit over to that direction. But understand, it is always going to be full of awesome lawyers, awesome speakers, awesome uh, guests that are going to come on here and really bring it. So um, thanks once again for listening to this podcast. If you have suggestions for topics or other speakers uh, that would like to, you know, that you think would be good for me to get on, um, please send me an email. Uh, you can connect with me through all of the various social media avenues that, I, that I'm out there at Mark Holthy um, for Twitter. And uh, yeah, that's, that's about it for today, folks. So thanks for listening in. Don't forget to slip over to iTunes and leave a review for me because those reviews directly impact on the search searchability of the podcast. And although I feel like it's really rocking right now, um, I would love nothing more than uh, for it to be ranked, you know, number one uh, for legal podcasts out there. Um, so do that. And like I said, if you if you have any suggestions or tips, send them my way. And if you have any just thoughts on how I can improve the podcast, uh, please let me know as well. So thanks so much. And uh, good luck, everyone, as, as you go forward with your, 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 your lives, uh, trying to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Here on the
秋。